Before we start today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Zencaster, which is a podcaster's best friend. Trust me when I tell you this, Zencaster is like the Shopify for podcasters. It's all you need to get up and running as a podcaster. And the best thing about Zencaster is that you get so much stuff for free. If you are planning to check out the platform, then please show your support for the Founder Thesis podcast by using this link, zen.ai slash Founder Thesis. That's zen.ai slash Founder Thesis. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Dhruv Agarwala. I'm currently the CEO for uh, REA India Limited, which owns the brands housing.com, proptiger.com, and makan.com. Have you heard the story of the 12 IIT graduates who co-founded a company way back in 2012 and then top VCs like SoftBank, Halion and Nexus invested more than $120 million in the company? Eventually, the company became a headline story due to founder issues and this is how many of us would remember housing.com. But a more interesting fact about Housing.com is that it is now the leading real estate portal in India, having beaten competitors who would have been double its size just a couple of years ago. And this remarkable turnaround was brought about by one of the pioneering founders in the country who quit his job to build a startup way back in 2006 and was probably the first Indian founder to get funded by SoftBank. This episode of Founder Thesis Podcast features the journey of none other than Dhruv Agarwala, the man behind Prop Tiger, Housing.com and Makan.com. Dhruv came back to India after pursuing his higher education at Stanford and Harvard and here he is telling Akshay about the trigger that led him to quit a well-paying job at GE to become an entrepreneur. Did you have a business plan in mind when you like... No. Okay, you just said, no. let's do something. Like that was the... Something we, okay. we sort of, you know, threw multiple darts at that point in time and... And we're like, okay, this may work, that may work. So there were lots of brainstorming which had happened, but we hadn't sort of narrowed or zoomed in on a particular business idea. So I think 30th of June is when was my last day at, at GE in India. And and then, of course, we'd had some experiences after having moved, moved back uh, to India, opening our bank accounts, loads and loads of these relationship managers hounding us for investing in ULIPs and investing in mutual funds, etc. And then even if we did, asking us to get out of one fund one day and put it to another fund next day, all sorts of things happening in order to earn fees. And then we realized that what they are telling us is not really good. It's not the right thing. I'm like, why would I buy a ULIP if you kind of strip? Uh, you, you must be familiar, right? The unit linked investment plans, right? So they were called. Or unit linked insurance plans. I can't remember exactly uh, what it stood for. But it was essentially an insurance product where whatever you put in, 30-40% immediately went out as commission to the agent. And all you ended up doing was invest the remaining. So, of course, as good analytical folks, we, we kind of tried to decipher what it was and realize the best product out there was actually selling a term insurance on life and then selling a mutual fund. And back to an index fund, which has very low entry loads and don't have any, don't have a very high expense ratio while they're operating. So, that's the best product, right? But of course, the question was that how do we how do we make money while doing that? So anyways, there were lots and lots of ideas, but this particular experience of ours that about dealing with financial institutions, especially on the investment insurance side, made us realize there was an opportunity there to create a business where we could provide financial advice to clients, do efficient asset allocation for them, and on the back of that, help them buy products. So, so, so we kind of shortlisted that idea. Did you want to do it for HNIs or like a mass market product? No, for mass market. The whole idea was mass market because there were a few boutiques out there doing it for HNIs and we felt that, look, we didn't, we didn't want to become wealth advisors. We wanted to build a business for the mass market, which was tech enabled, really. So, so we, we went to quite a few, we went to Europe a few times, met with these sort of advisory networks there. Many of them, one was in Italy, uh, one was at actually Holland and many other such places look at models abroad and we felt this had legs. I guess the, the rails were not there at that time to seamlessly collect. The, the 
for the for that technology to work to seamlessly collect money from customer put it into mutual fund put it into insurance yeah. all of it for a customer yeah. the experience is just one click and everything else handled through api integration yeah. so none of that, that was, was not there. possible it was not there the rails were not there yeah. so it so ultimately it became also we didn't realize it and look one can argue we had the opportunity of creating the rails maybe we ran out of steam before that but but i think we we did we 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 thought we built a very good business which was founded on trust we, you know a company was called i trust and essentially our our lead lead was a financial plan you would create a financial plan let's say for akshay and his family where we'd understand personal details about about you right so we analyze and look this is your income potential this is your goal these are your current investments this is what you need to do on an annual basis to be able to achieve those goals which automatically led to asset allocation if your goal was near term next year we wouldn't ask you to put money into equities because that needed to be funded by a fixed income prop but if today your goal your kid was 1 year old but he wanted to put money away for that child's or an education then you could easily take equity risk because over 20 years equity would have you know done better which we've seen historically happen we used to charge for a financial plan we used to make commission we used to be quite open about the commission we made but then what happened was that rules changed mutual funds charge any entry loads or whatever little commission we got we we stopped getting although we we were doing the right thing for the consumer but even the little commission which we were making also went away then people were not very willing to pay for a financial plan they thought it should be hmm. free hmm. Uh, yeah like no yeah, yeah. it's for free that that is the mindset yeah the temptation for us is to then make money by selling you the wrong product but if we charge you for it there's no there is no reason why we won't be working for you we are your advisor we are on your side not not on the opposite side which a lot of the people were at that point in time so but i think it was taking you know staking time we had raised capital in 2007 from some blue chip investors we had we had raised 6 million dollars of seed money at that point wow. which wow. which wasn't small uh, yeah, it, it raised it, so. even by today's standards it's not small <laughs> yeah. uh, so one of our investors so we had algebris as an investor which was a uh, leading financial services hedge fund in the uk and and then we also raised capital from softbank china india so yeah so so market investors we had classmates not i wouldn't say classmates but harvard network networks from the harvard network professors former alumni we had become friends all of them invested So we had a grand and marquee names. So we had a bunch of great names in there, and we ran the business for about four and a half years. Then we came at a crossroads. Uh, this this must have been a high touch business, no? Like I don't think it was that easy to have a pure web application which does all this for people. This was a high touch business, although we had automated the entire financial plan. but you still needed to input a lot of information and then an output would come out. But still, trying to explain the financial plan to people, etc. a bit of a challenge so we realized that it was two people intensive and then we were at a crossroads we could have raised more capital which meant a lot of dilution because we had raised a large round already when in, in our seed round and then we, we we took a step back and said that look hey if we had to restart would we do this again or or not and if the answer was we wouldn't then why would we just continue the whole concept of sunk cost right that if you spent for a half years doing something if it's meaningful then you do it if you would not do it that means you should not be doing it anyways so that was sort of the the, the learning we we applied or the sort of framework we applied to see whether we should go and raise the next round of capital or not a lot of our investors were willing to back us but you know it would come at a cost there would be a lot of dilution then there was still a lot of unsolved problems etc and we felt that maybe it's not the right thing what we were proud of was our go to market channel we had we visited worksite marketing one of the first companies to do that we had inroads into about 150 to 175 top large corporates where we we were hr's preferred partners to do financial planning seminar filing tax returns for people and lots and lots of other things the so first anyone wanted help on anything financial they were referred to us so that was a very nice sort of acquisition engine for us plus of course the trust we had built at the market the financial planning tool etc so we ultimately got acquired by carvi because we explicitly thought that we want to we want to exit and 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 we also realized that look if we were to do something we could pick a piece of our business which was actually doing very well that was the real estate piece so we found that there was a huge demand we found in our portfolio one was real estate 
I'm going, people wanted to buy a home. They're the first investment they wanted to make, big one, right? They all wanted their own homes. And then something which went hand in hand with that were mortgages, right? Because typical Indian middle class family can't afford to put down the entire money for a home. So the idea was save up enough to put a down payment, take out a mortgage, then buy a property. So we realized that that piece of the business was 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 doing very well because people wanted. What we also realized that why they were coming to us was because of the trust factor. They were a little concerned that there was a lot of mis-selling going on in real estate that time as well. A lot of fly-by-night operators who were, who were developers and and the people just didn't know. People just didn't trust anyone. Yeah, uh, what what were they coming to you for? Were you, were you like like helping them in the search process, like a typical uh, real estate agent, or were you helping? Oh, so what, so, yeah, once so what, they decide on a property, then helping with the loan. No, so one we were of course wherever we asserted that there was a requirement for a property, then we obviously tied up with a few developers actually to uh, to to exactly what Prop Tiger does: market the pro- pro- product for the developer. Take the take the commission from the developer, but the service is entirely free for the consumer, and it's a full handheld service, soup to nuts, all the way from a site visit to shortlisting, then paperwork, getting them a loan, and then even follow ups post that. So we started doing that, and because we were a financial planning business, we almost felt that was an obligation to kind of provide this end to end service to a client. So we did that, and clients loved it, right? In a market where there was a lot of mistrust, right? Yeah, there were no professional uh, like agencies, so to say. Right, uh, correct. Who were really helping the customers. There was no recourse. If something mm-hmm. went wrong, look, there's still no recourse on brokers. But at the end of the day, even when today we we we, we help customers buy, when all the information is provided, now with the RERA coming in, it's even more transparent. And ultimately the choice is the is is, is the is the consumer. But we still felt that the consumers, at least that time, were fairly naive. Uh, and and needed that handholding, needed that guidance. So we we did that. And so just because of the very nature of the transaction, it becomes a very emotionally charged process. And and it's, it's and we've we've studied that through market research. When you, when you want to buy a home, you're very excited because you're like the, you're just dreaming about moving into your own home. Then the process starts. That's when your your excitement dips, and it sinks right because. You like to you're kind of dealing with uncertainty. You're unable to make a choice. Afraid of putting on a large chunk of money and going wrong. This isn't a decision which you can undo. There's no sort of send back through Amazon. It's very different. So people were naturally very afraid. So we felt that we as partners could help flatten that emotional roller coaster into a straight path and say, "Hey, look, we are there for you. We've got your back. Don't worry. Trust us." And we were coming from the position of a startup backed by some marquee investors with brand names. We ourselves were very credible as with our personal backgrounds, which helped us. So we realized that there was a business to be built around that. So when we when we, when, when we sold iTrust to Carvey, post that is when Prop Tiger was born. Literally for the first few years of Prop Tiger, we've, we, we used to celebrate a foundation day. Of course, after we acquired Makan and then housing, there was no sort of real foundation day. So we stopped doing it. But but till then we used to celebrate. I think if I remember correctly, February first as a foundation day. But thirty first Jan is when the ink on the transaction with Garvey. Thirty first of Jan. So literally next morning, we just moved over from our office at Gurgaon to a new office in Noida to start Prop Tiger. So it was both again my my partner and I, my my partner and I. And then we had a third co-founder join us, somebody who used to work for Ninety Nine Acres. And then after that, the venture info edge started called All Check Deals, which is very similar to what Prop Tiger was. So he joined us. So we were three co-founders in Prop Tiger. Funded? Like, like did you raise raise like a seed round for that, or like? So so we went. So it was, it was very it was very interesting, Akshay. That when we sold the business, I trust it was, it was like a slop sale. So it was it was sold. The biz, part of the business was sold. So what does uh, what does this term mean? Slump sale, like so you sell you sell one piece of the business in its entirety, all its costs, all its revenue, everything as a so it's sold as a business unit. There's an accounting significance to that, which means I think the taxation and something works differently because it is like a full business which is being sold, which is what we were selling. And but we retained the entity. And and we agreed and we agreed with them that uh, we agreed with them that the real estate piece would remain, mm. uh, and they had and, no interest in real estate. Like it's and they had no interest in real estate. Mm. It worked out really well. 
Uh, so whatever you know, money which came into the business, which wasn't like a huge amount to be honest, but it was good enough for us to get started. And and the good part is all our earlier investors stayed in the business. And we said, hey, look, you haven't got your exit. Maybe things didn't go pan out the way I really should have. But hey, look, this is a new venture. You're still on the cap table. Come along for the ride. And they were all happy about it. I bet we raised raised fresh capital. Some of our existing guys came back. So some of our angels came back, SoftBank came back and a couple of other new investors came in. Algebris left because they were very keen on doing only financial services. And that's when Axel and Safe also came. So so pretty much our institutional round with Safe and Axel had happened by within 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 a year of of Prop Tiger being launched. Mm-hmm. Because we had the initial capital to run, you know, to not realize. If you like to hear stories of founders, then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion-dollar businesses. Just search for the Founder Thesis Podcast on any audio streaming app like Spotify, Ghana, Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to the show. Uh, why did you choose the name Prop Tiger? So this was this was this was decided by uh, or kind of picked. We all decided together, but I the name. The person who came up with the name was uh, my co-founder, Karthik, Karthik Varma. So he came up with it and we just liked it. It was almost like we'll hunt property for you. So uh, like a tiger is very focused on, on finding what it wants to find. We just use that that as a as a sort of metaphor for, for naming prop tiger, for naming our business. Right. It was essentially a supply-led business, right? The challenge for you was not getting more customers but getting more supply because like you the more supply you have the more then options you can offer to customers and customers would naturally gravitate to you like yeah so it, it's interesting actually so so look in a two-sided marketplace akshay you're always trying to figure out what needs to come first right so you have to start investing heavily in one side and you as, a, as you say pump prime the that that particular side and so that when the other side starts to come there is stuff already there. Otherwise, there's no point. So, so in the beginning, you really got to, in order to get the flywheel, you've got to invest, whether it's in branding, whether it's in giving incentives for suppliers to come on board or, or customers to come on board, whatever it is. So in, in that sense, we're not, not in, we're, we're no different from a, from a classical two-sided marketplace. So that's, that's sort of how sort of Prop Tiger started. It was basically an offshoot of uh, iTrust, got funded. But our goal was very clear, right? We said that, look, we want to provide a world-class experience, you know, to our consumers. We want them to feel completely at ease in one of the most important purchase decisions of their life, which is highly emotionally charged, right? And try and figure out a way where we could actually do it free for them because we were getting paid from by, by the developer. Of course, there was one big, big, you know, conflict, quote-unquote, that are you more loyal to the consumer or more loyal to the customer who pays you money? But we were very clear, and that was sort of the ethos we carried forward from iTrust. That whatever we do, consumer is central for us. That was what iTrust was all about. That's what Prop Tiger is all about today. That's what housing and Makan are all about. And 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 we said that that's the most important thing. So we provided a high touch service. We said it's going to be end to end. Everything a person needs to complete their home buying journey, we're going to do. Now. There were two aspects to it. There's, of course, there was also the possibility of doing rentals. There's also the possibility of doing resale homes, the second-hand home. And we we experimented with it, and we realized that if transaction would fall through for like in a fifty lakh property for fifty thousand rupees, the seller would say, "I'm not going to reduce my price." The buyer would, for whatever ego reasons or whatever, say, "This is it." Or maybe genuinely, fifty thousand bucks was large. Look, I'm. I maxed out everything. I just can't afford it. So we found it was getting a bit of a challenge trying to map the right supply with the right demand at the right time was becoming a challenge. So we said, you know what? The primary market is the easiest because mm. the supply side is not that difficult. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because so at the end of every the day, developer you tie up with gives you maybe 100 or 1,000. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So availability was easy. It was more transparent. You knew what was out there. The risk you were taking was that you had to, of course, do diligence on the developer because all the developers were showing you was a piece of paper and a piece of land. So you had to kind of visualize what would happen there. So reputation became very important. And we did have our fair share of blow-ups as well, being honest, that we made the wrong choices. But over a period of time, we've become now very good at it. And those blow-ups don't happen any. Maybe one 
once in three years or four years, but there the, the frequency was higher because you're all sort of learning. But when the goal was pick the right developer, have enough supply. So when you actually generate demand, you're able to fulfill that demand without, and it's, and it's transparent supply. You know that this is this exists, this is the price. You tell that to the buyer upfront and all the thing happens. As opposed to resale transaction where the owner might put out a certain price and then there may be a broker involved, not involved, but ultimately what happens is that that marriage to happen, lots of stars need to align. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, you, that, is, yeah, that is only like a listing is what you could do there. You can't really drive transactions in that kind of a scenario, I guess. I mean, look, you you can. There are people trying it. We are also mm-hmm. trying it. Now, you know, it's more tech-driven and one is, one can use sort of, the right way of looking at this is to see, okay, let's look at the transaction end-to-end. What does it entail? And what can we do more digitally? And what is the last piece which, piece which we need to do physically, right? And if you can do 90% of the thing digitally, then it becomes easier to do it. So I definitely believe that this is doable. Today's context, it was a little bit difficult that time and frankly the way we had emphasized the business sometimes the way you even design your business day one impacts how what products you can get into what categories you, you get into and what you can't get it so the way we were structured for with PropTie doing primary market sales I think secondary market was a bit of a challenge and we tried it and we we, we, we sort of discontinued because it didn't, didn't do very well for us hmm. so uh, uh, just to yeah. uh, recap my understanding so Essentially, like the the prop tiger experience for a customer would be that he would get a list of properties from developers. Uh, like instead of going to ten different developers, come to prop tiger and you will be able to look at properties. Plus, a prop tiger employee will handhold you, be it a site visit or be it paperwork right. or getting That's you right. a loan. That whole journey of buying the houses, like you have a like a dedicated account manager. Uh, that's right. So end to end, you're taken care of, you're given choices. And uh, the role of tech in this was to have the whole workflows digitized so that uh, things don't fall through the cracks. Uh, that's right. One big role of tech was building the marketplace where people would come and at least search for hmm. which property they wanted, short right. list, etc. Right. Hmm. So that's that sort of proptiger.com for you, right? People come and get property information, research. Look at photographs, compare, shortlist, etc., and then come to you and say that, hey, look, this is what we want to buy. And there we gave them more choices than what we sold, but we were very clearly sort of calling out what we are selling, what we are not selling, right? So that people use so it. What you are not selling, then uh, what would the customer do in that case? Like you directly pass on that lead to. No, no, we wouldn't. So we would tell them very clearly that, look, you are looking for this particular property in this area. We, we believe that this, this is a better property in this area, which is why this is where we come in. So we we better served buying this property. And in certain neighborhoods, certain geographies where we didn't have a tie for the developer, we would just decline and say, hey, look, we are in a position to help. We think you could go to this developer directly and maybe they can help you. So at least not, yeah, not kill them in, in the sense that, you know, kill, uh, uh, kill the transaction right there and there and leave a dissatisfied consumer, at least give them some lead. And say that, look, here's here's sort of the place you could go to. So it became a point of research, like, like a customer could start the research there. In some cases, they would do the whole transaction. In some cases, they would not. That's right. Got it. And so let me just ask you about both these sides now, both the developer and the customer. So the developer deals, what were they structured like? Like, was it like that 1% commission you get? I think that is the traditional norm, right? Like, was it so, so, so basically, 1% we're talking about, uh, actually, on the, on the resale side, 1% of the buy, the, the buy side broker gets, 1% the sell side broker gets. But for uh, primary market transactions, typically a developer pays you a commission, which is anywhere between, uh, you know, 1.5% to about 25 3%, depending on how many units you do. Sometimes you can get higher slabs if you are able to do more. But typically, it ranges between one and a half to about mm-hmm. three. And this was an exclusive tie-up or their inventory is available. You could be selling it. Someone else could also be selling it. It, it was not. It was non-exclusive. But a lot of developers did not choose more than three or four channel partners, typically. It wasn't as if it was open to all. Today, we again, we do a few 
exclusive mandates, as we call them, in a few geographies like Bangalore, Chennai, looking at doing it in Pune and Mumbai. But they are few and far between. We still primarily are non-exclusive partners. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And of course, there are a few sort of institution institutions, but you know, they aren't like the startup kinds who are trying to use technology, raising VC capital. It's more like sort of promoter-led lifestyle business, things like that. Not, not, not like what we are trying to build. Hmm. Got it, got it. And how did you acquire customers? So, so customer acquisition, you mean consumers, yeah. So consumers, yeah, 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 the, yes. the buyers. So yeah, we we, we buyers. distinguish it because, look, I think uh, a lot of marketing, obviously, obviously digital marketing was one of our key strengths, that SEO, as people are searching for property. Hmm. Um, did you uh, market as like find find your next home or did you market as, say, Amrapali homes, like, like it was using our own brand, Prop Tiger, and in many instances it was combined. Where it was, it was like we're selling DLF property, you know, marketed by Prop Tiger, kind of thing like that. So we, you know, we would we would do that. And then with this business, one of the things Akshay is that NPS score is is very high in this business. So it's north of seventy. So there's a huge word of mouth for customer acquisition. Right. Once you get through the process, you're satisfied, you make referrals. Of course, you also sort of incentivize, you know, consumers to give referrals. But because there's so much of happiness, automatically it happens. So here, I think once you've got a large enough customer pool, then here the acquisition flywheel also moves nicely. But you get a lot of referrals. Of course, I mean, you've got to keep refreshing every few months. But at least there is a, there is a great sort of pool mm. of consumers we get from mm. referrals. Yeah, because it's a very high involvement uh, decision. High touch business. That's mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. So, like 2011, you started. So, w what kind of numbers were you doing year on year? Like, I'll give you a sense of trajectory. So, you get a good sense. Uh, I think from from 11 to 13 was dream, right? We just, we, we were just growing month on month at staggering rates, right? It was 2013, March, when I would say the bottom fell from the real estate, residential real estate sector. You know? So I think it was a, it was a, driven by a few things. There was just a general cyclical downturn, uh, you know, which was happening. The real estate cycles tend to be, tend to be long cycles. From 2004, we saw like big boom in real estate. I think it took a breather during the financial crisis between 2008 and 10. And then from 10 onward, it again took off. So it was almost like I would say almost a nine-year cycle punctuated by the financial crisis. Otherwise, it was there. And it was due, I think, one was a lot of supply. End users left the market because the prices were going up so rapidly because speculators were just crowding out these end users. Uh, a lot of developers actually were not fulfilling their promises. They were raising, launching a project, raising money, rather than deploying it immediately there and into the project and building it out. They were redeploying the money to buy more land. Not all, but I would say uh, a few bad apples. And as we know, a few bad apples everywhere can can uh, sort of spoil the basket, as they say. And we were frankly expecting a downturn to last for beyond three years. But then, of course, we had demonetization, which impacted the sector. Then there was RERA, which came in, which with the short term was a challenge because the developers had to adjust to the new norms. I think four years since RERA, I think it's, it's been a, big bone for the sector. We were always crying out for regulation and we still don't think it's regulated enough. But I think if, if, if it gets more regulated, and we've seen that with insurance, the sector then, it takes time to adjust, but then it matures under regulatory oversight. There's more trust in the sector and ultimately where there's trust, business flourishes. So so we think that there's not enough still, but, but anyways, whatever we have, I think helped a lot. But in the short term, that was one big, big sort of jolt again. Very soon after demonetization, then the whole GST regime got announced. There again, there was lots of uncertainty in what the GST rates would be. Now they sort of settled down. Then that was one uncertainty. Then there was the NBFC crisis. In any case, it was hard for developers to borrow from banks. The other source of funding also kind of became a challenge. And then, of course, COVID happened, right? So literally from 2013 to 20, every one, one and a half year, two year interval, something or the other was happening. So every time... We thought we were getting out of that downturn and getting into a cyclical upturn. I think things sort of didn't pan out. But now where we stand is actually, I think we are at the cusp of a long upcycle in real estate. I think what COVID has done is it has reinforced the importance of a home for home buyers. People now recognize that, look, the only safe haven if something like this happens 
is one's home. And it's been too long. I mean, it's been two years. This is not going to go away from public memory that quickly. So people will always be like, look, something like this could happen. We all start for life mm. in that sense. I mean, not just that, but even the whole work from home trend will force people to look for bigger houses because bigger houses. Husband, exactly. wife, both working at home, kids at home. So, you know, that. That's right. Mm. Four years on, I think Red has brought a lot of the consumer sort of mistrust. I think a lot of the consumer confidence has come back because of because of Red And the other thing is we've seen historically low interest rates. Although interest rates are now looking, I think will go up. We can't avoid it because of inflation. But still, they are, at, as we speak, at historical lows. Mortgage rates are at historical lows. Wage increases over the last four or five years have been significant. Prices have been pretty stable. I think literally, I mean, if you look at Kager for apartments in the top eight cities, right? It's been a 2% Kager in the last like six years or so for apartments. So that's even lower than inflation. So in real terms, property prices have actually come down. But give me an idea, like how many units do you sell in a year? Like how many units does Prop Tiger sell in a year? I mean, the thing is that, look, we we are definitely amongst the top top three sort of institutional sales organizations for real estate in the country today. And and we continue to be one of the most trusted ones. It's not the most trusted. We've been around for a long time. We build the company ethos of trust, that, that whole sort of I trust mindset of we're going to do the best thing for our consumer stays. So we have a lot of trust, both on the developer side, who know that if Prop Tiger brings business to it, it's going to be good business. It's just not trying to stuff the channel and hike up numbers. And the consumer also knows that if you're going to bring a builder to them, it's going to be a curated builder where we've done our diligence and research on. And that's 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 very, very important for Prop Tiger. But look, going back to your question around why, why, why housing, why Yeah, yeah. I want to understand that whole journey yeah, of sure, sure. the yeah, sure, like, sure. like the, the, the journey of the acquisitions and uh yeah. Right. So look, look in, 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 in 2015, we realized that we were getting a lot of consumers for the Prop Tiger business who, who were sort of at the bottom of the funnel in that sense, meaning they'd already started their property search journey on some other platform because it's, a, it's typically a six month journey, right? When people came to Prop Tiger, they almost made up that decision, made up their minds. And many instances, we never got all those customers or a large chunk. Many of them went to other places. Because if you were going to a you know traditional classified uh, business and a, a broker was advertising there for the same property, they could have also bought it from there. I mean, there's nothing, you know, st- stopping you from buying there. So, so we thought that it was, it was important to sort of have consumers come into a stable who were starting at the top of the journey top of the funnel really, right? Or at the start of the journey, which is where they hadn't even made up their minds around whether they wanted to buy a property or rent the property. So that that was sort of one 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 thought process. And then realized one thing, as we were wanting to build a business of scale, Newscorp came on as an investor with us in 2014. They owned Realtor.com in the US. They owned REA Group in Australia, at least a large stake. In REA, I'm sorry, Realtor, they own fully along with REA. And in REA, which is a listed company, they own a substantial uh, stake. So they came along and with their classified businesses, advertising-led businesses or media businesses, we understood a lot about the dynamics of such businesses. And we realized that brokerages, brokerage businesses tend to be more fragmented. The barriers to entry are lower, hard to create differentiation, hard, you don't have pricing power. Because today, you know, you cannot charge more than that 2-3%, right? Whatever it is. Uh, that dynamic is not going to change. Suddenly, it's not going to say, look, I'm a great broker, I'm going to charge you 10% or I have a great product. It's not going to happen. But in the advertising business, there is a sort of a winner-takes-all dynamic to it. You can become a dominant player, then get a dominant share of profits, dominant share of traffic, everything else which comes along with that dominance. And, and, and... And look, India is a big market. You can be a winner in Bangalore. You may not be able to make a dent in Delhi or vice versa. So anyways, so 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 I think our view was that ultimately you want to be in this business where there is this winner-takes-all kind of dynamic. There are huge barriers to entry which you're erecting because once audience starts coming to your platform, they get very, very sticky. They don't leave your platform. While for a brokerage, there are many, many more choices. It's harder to kind of differentiate yourself. And and very few places in the world we saw where brokerages had you know, started getting a disproportionate share of the market. Always very fragmented business. So so we felt that that was a natural sort of progression for us to move from being a brokerage only business to a broader advertising business. Hmm. 
And Makan was like, what was the background of Makan, and like, how did you end up acquiring it? That was the first acquisition, right? Yeah. Look, I'll be I'll be very honest with you. We wanted to get into the space at that point in time. That was the asset which was available, and we said that look, we'll buy it and we'll learn. And the sooner we start, the better it is. Mm-hmm. So we bought the asset. Makan was like and a was people group. Uh, property people group so we, we we bought it from them and we 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 changed a lot of things so we changed the entire user experience we 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 invested a lot in enhancing technology etc and it was beginning to yield results for us but then all of a sudden housing became available because of their own internal challenges and we felt that given the amount of money which housing had spent on brand their product was still top notch and and there was just a lot of sort of recall for the brand that that i think was key uh, and a great user 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 interface. I mean, it wasn't an easy decision. Uh, there were enough investors on our cap table who said that through we are stepping into a sinking ship, you'll sink along with it. Honestly, I was nervous. I can't say that I was going in with full conviction that it would happen. Uh, but look, we did our diligence very carefully. And by the end of it, I realized, look, there wasn't anything that bad. There was a lot, lot of good. And there wasn't anything that bad. Things happen sometimes, right? Did make it a bad business, frankly. From the outside, that perception was there, which which in a way, which in a way is not bad because it helped us acquire the asset. SoftBank was a common investor, like that would have. Yes, yes, you know, so it's funny that SoftBank was actually on its way out from a cap table. Okay. Uh, because they are all there, but once they invested in housing, yeah, a little uncomfortable with them being on our cap table. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But then, funnily enough, before they even went off it, they came back on. Not, never really left the cap yeah. table uh, right. of our business mm-hmm. between 2006 and 2000 and uh, you know 20, 2020 when mm-hmm. we when we mm-hmm. sold the entire business to REA. So, anyways, we going into the business, we 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 realized a lot of things we had to do. It was a big acquisition. I mean, the size of the organization was very similar on both sides. Culture we were very different. There was obviously this lot of angst amongst the existing employees about what had happened. So it was not it was not a trivial problem to first merge the two businesses and then to grow the business. There was a lot of experience on ours. What I had learned from my GE days was that when you're doing diligence on a business, at the same time you have to craft an integration plan. So with the day the merger happens, day one. You know exactly what to do. You're not sort of sitting down the next morning and say, what did I just do? (laughs) (laughs) So it happens. You know, believe me, it happens. It sounds like there are enough smart people in the world who wouldn't do it. But believe me, there are enough smart people who make that mistake. So this was just a playbook we were using, you know, which I'd learned at GE. Complete merger merger plan was was devised. So we knew exactly what to do on day one. I would like to say that whatever has happened since then, five years from then, is because when we started, we were like a number five player or a number six player. You had ninety-nine market, acres, like like a in the, market. In the classified advertising market. market. Hmm. You had ninety-nine acres. You had Magic Bricks. You had India Property. You had Quicker Homes. Uh, you had Common Floor. Yeah, uh, yeah. All of that. So barring barring the great UX and barring the brand recall, I think from an audience perspective, which is bread and butter for a for a one. It's right. We're behind. But I'm happy to say right now, you should go open up similar web and uh, compare our traffic to uh, the players. And we've been at consistently at number one for the last three months. So and this is, you're talking of housing and Makan combined? or Just housing. Just housing.com. Okay. 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 Mm-hmm. Look, Makan since then has become a flanking brand to housing. There's very little investment which goes into the business. Wherever there is, wherever there is audience and lack of audience overlap and they leave leads. We use that to supplement leads, you know, which we generate for our agent developer customers from Makan. And and that's it. We don't sell products on Makan separately. You could buy a combined package on, on Makan and housing, but we don't encourage that very much. I mean, housing has, from the time we acquired it to now, the traffic is up, I think, eight times. And between even the start of COVID and now, because of the rapid digital adoption, we are almost like close to, uh, you know, 3x plus. Of course, market's also grown, but we've grown faster than the market. And today, according to similar web, we've consistently been number ones the last three months. So I think I would say that we've come a long way. We've established one of the leading brands, even in terms of all the brand data, brand awareness data. This top of mind, whether it's in, in terms of total recall, everything else, we've made significant inroads and amongst the top three and running neck and neck. In terms of revenue ramp up, we've ramped up our revenue significantly. Hmm. So, uh, what is the revenue model for uh, 
the classified business like housing. So for housing, so for housing, Akshay, the model is very simple. We have people who list on the platform, right? So you have developers, you have brokers slash agents, and you also have homeowners who directly use on the platform and they pay us a listing fee. And then many times they also want visibility on the platform, so they pay us for that as well. But essentially the expectation is that, that they will get inquiries from consumers coming on the platform. That's one revenue, a source of revenue from owners, developers, and agents. And, and then we have a bunch of services under a, under a sort of name which we call Housing Edge on the platform, where Housing Edge essentially offers services such as online rent payment, online rent agreements, packers and movers, furniture rentals, multiple stuff, which basically are required, services which are required in the entire buying journey or the rental journey. So the idea is to be a full stack player where we can assist either the landlord and seller or the buyer through the entire home buying, selling, renting journey. So that's that's where we make a lot of fee income as well. When you pay rent, you make a fee. When you do it, it's ordered an online agreement to make a fee. So they get curated listings. Okay, no. Connect them directly. Yeah, it's like so, a concierge service in a way. Like, it's, like a, it's, like a, it's like a concierge service. That's right. That's right. But we... See, at the, at the end of the day, we've been running this concierge service in Prop Tiger for years. We have that expert and we never charge the consumer for it because it was always free. So we're trying to sort of build the same sort of concierge service now to supplement the, the agent business as well as the developer business. We don't think that the agents are going to disappear anytime soon. We don't believe that uh, the developers will, developers can't go or disappear. But at the end of the day, developers also advertise through agents. Not all of them advertise directly. So there's a mix. So we we believe that, we believe that there are going to be three important pillars of our business from a, from a customer. When I say customer, meaning the, the, the customer who sort of pays us is going to be developers, brokers and, and, and no sort of order of importance. I think they're all three equally important stakeholders. Each of them, which play a very important role, you know, in the ecosystem. And if I look at real estate markets globally, right, this is the kind of ecosystem which exists. And we believe that this is the ecosystem we want to play in, where we are catering to different needs. So look, there will be, you might be a DIY guy, right? You you want to kind of, you're okay to do all site visits yourself as a, as a, as a, as a home seller or a home, homeowner. Are you you happy to negotiate yourself, etc.? Maybe your friend is somebody who says, "Hey, look, I don't want to deal with a headache. I want to I want to appoint a broker. The broker does everything for me. I'll take a call and say yes or no." So, so as they say, horses for courses, right? I mean, you can't paint the whole world with one brush, right? There are different people with different requirements and needs, right? So, we believe that there are all all three important segments, and and we cater to all three all three segments. So the consumer side, uh, consumers, obviously, there are some consumers who want direct owner listings. There are some consumers who are happy working with brokers, as in the buyers and the tenants. Some who want to go to developers directly. So again, I think there's a match. There's a natural gravitation for the type of buyer who goes to a type of seller. So that's what we do. But but I believe that this is, this is one market, Akshay, where we haven't seen a leader emerge, right? Clear leader in the last, uh, you know, 15 years. I think some of the incumbents started back in 2004, five or six, and they've traditionally been leaders. We've just gone ahead in terms of audience, but of course, a lot of work still remains to be done. But I believe that the next five years, just given a few things, as I mentioned to you earlier, just the entire sort of upturn in the real estate cycle, you know, they've driven by sort of very, very idiosyncratic uh, factors to the real estate industry. That's that's one big tailwind. Second thing I think is this whole digital adoption, right? I think the digital adoption is one thing which uh, this is only something we could have dreamt of. I mean, COVID's been something you know which has you know taken a huge human toll, right? But in a perverse way, a lot of digital businesses have benefited. Right, because the world has been forced to go more digital. We are one such beneficiary where I would say overall audience of digital real estate platforms in the last two years has doubled. If you look at the entire sector, pretty much. So so we, ex- we expect this dig- digital acceleration which has happened to benefit that benefit the sector, I think clearly. These are two two uh, you know very important things which I feel will will ultimately end up creating big businesses in this space. I think prop tech has been one sector which has suffered a bit. I think it's been because of the softness of the underlying sector, which is real estate. 
But now that sort of looking looking more positive, I think you're going to see some big businesses being built in this space over the next three to four years. Okay. And so tell me about the the acquisition by REA. How did that come about? So look, News Corp is a strategic player in digital real estate, right? They own, as I said, large, uh, they, they basically own 100% of the entire business along with REA. And REA is, and Realtor operates in, in the US. And I think it's amongst the top top two companies in the US market for digital real estate. REA, which they own, I think, a significant stake. I think it's of the order of 60% plus. REA is a listed company in, in on, on the ASX in Australia. Plus, at one point in time, and, and, and today, REA owns a significant minority stake in, in Property Guru in, 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 in Singapore, which is headquartered in Singapore, but has assets across Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, pretty much across Southeast Asia. They're the leading player in Southeast Asia. So clearly, News Corp slash RE have a, have a strategic interest in digital real estate. So when News Corp invested in us in uh, you know 2014, they realized that India was going to be a big, big market, you know, for real estate. One of the biggest markets or the biggest market outside of China, right? And China, you a lot of local players which had already become very big. So for, for them to be able to make inroads in China would have been very difficult or next to impossible. So India was a market which was there for the taking. As I mentioned, there was no sort of breakout leader in this space at all. So the opportunity to create create a breakout leader was, that's why they invested in us. Uh, and then subsequently, when we acquired housing, REA came on board as an investor. And the ultimate goal for them, uh, you know, was to own the business. So, so that's, that's how it ultimately happened. I think we were growing nicely. Uh, there was a line of sight to becoming uh, leaders in terms of audience, in terms of brand, but ultimately in terms of revenue. And we all felt it was the right time for this to happen. It's been a year since uh, that's happened, a little bit over a year, and the business has only grown from uh, strength to strength. How, how did you personally feel about, I mean, like, as an entrepreneur, like to to sell your baby in a way? I'm a bit of a dispassionate guy about those things. Arya told me you're going to continue running it which I am, and you can continue doing what you're doing. We love what you're doing, and and there's no reason why why things should happen differently. If anything, you'll enjoy it more because now you have a multi-billion dollar balance sheet behind you, right? So all your sort of waking up in the morning, worrying about the next round of fundraising is all gone. You can focus on building the business, growing the business, etc. So, so in that sense, I'm doing what I was doing. They've given us a lot of runway and leeway to do, you know, how what we do. We still behave like a startup, still act like a startup and and feel like a startup, right? So that's that's the most important. I mean, nothing has changed. And I, I look, kudos to them for the way they've handled this acquisition. They've, they've got just the right amount of oversight, which is necessary for them, obviously being owners of the business. But at the same time, they've given us so much of flexibility uh, to run fast, right? And and that's just, I think, the way the, way the, the integration has been handled and one of the problems off the table, like, like they've taken the funding problem off the table for you. Exactly, exactly. And so the focus is more building the business and, and we've come a long way. As I said, look, back in 2019, October, I think we used to be like about half of 99 acres at Magic Bricks' traffic. Today, we're leaders. So that's a big, I would say, uh, progress we've made. How did you make housing succeed so widely to I mean, to, I mean, actually overtake competitors who were double of you. Like what? I think, I think it was, it was focus and, and determination and the will to win. I mean, we, we, we really wanted to win this badly. And if that hunger is not there to win, I think sometimes you, you won't, right? And, and that is, as they say, the curse of the, of the incumbent because you're already a leader. So, so naturally, it's harder to fight when you're a leader. It's always easier to fight when you're a challenger. But tell me some of those tactical decisions you took which helped, like as lessons to challengers. All, all, all I can say, all I can say, Akshay, is when we said we want to become leaders in audience first, right? The focus was leadership and audience. We, did, we, we didn't say we want to become leaders in audience and brand and traffic and everything else at the same time. Because it's hard to optimize across all. So our goal was very clear. Be number one in audience. You're saying like traffic, traffic. Got and then and then ensure that we have brand recall because ultimately they both feed into each other. So ensure that we try and match the recall of, of, of the market leaders or the incumbents. And then we said ultimately revenue will follow. 
and we are beginning to see that. And we've been growing at a much faster clip than competition. So we are taking market share. The market's also growing and we're also taking share. Yeah, I mean, revenue follows audience. So if you're growing an exactly. audience, then, yeah. yeah. Then. So we were, we were, we were very well. Uh, again, coming back to how you grew audience. Like, like, I mean, there are many ways. You could have a content-led way. You could have a performance marketing-led way to grow audience. So, so like, all I can say is the focus was organic audience. Performance marketing, you have to throw money at a problem. And that's that's like a leaky bucket. You got to keep throwing in the money every year and it goes, right? Then the next year come and you got to spend it again. So ours was more or organic audience. How do you engage the consumer more? How do you provide better information? Obviously, SEO is one important cornerstone of that and many other things which we did to drive this up. But but as I said, it was a single-minded single, single focus and we said it's okay for now to not, not worry too much about revenue growth. Let's focus on this first sort of leading metric. That, that grows. Everything else will follow over time. Mm, got it. Okay. Okay. So tell me, uh, like, w- what are some lessons on how to make acquisitions succeed? Like lessons for founders who may be looking at doing acquisitions. Look, you know, I think from an acquisitions perspective, I think it starts from the, the reason to acquire. Sometimes we do acquisition out of hubris, right? We just become bigger. We would have gobbled up a competitor. We'll be the consolidator. So I would say, this would be, got to be a very good reason for acquisition, right? Either genuinely, there's a very big fight between number one and two, number three, four, five have sort of fallen behind, but you're constantly burning cash because the competition is intense. Then I, I think it's better for both one and two to actually merge, right? So sometimes that's a driver of an acquisition. Sometimes you're not strong in a particular geography. So you buy, buy a player or you merge with a player who's stronger in their geography, which is natural. It could be a certain product segment. It could be acqui hires where you bring on certain talent, which has become even more important with this talent crunch world today. So, so there are various reasons. So you, so you must have a very sound reason to do an acquisition. It should not be hubris. That's, that's, that's the first starting point. Now the second important point for me is the fact that you have to be very, very clear about your integration plan, which I mentioned earlier as well in this conversation. And you need to know what the integration plan looks like day one. Look, we all know that acquisitions result in, in redundancy sometime, right? There are more than two people there for the same job. You've got to be clear in terms of how you're going to handle that, right? Either move one person onto a different role, or the business also grows to so try and find their roles elsewhere in the company. So you have to be very clear on who's going to be in key leadership positions, talk to the people who are going to be in position. You need to know what to do, which offices are going to, you know, come together, which pe- teams are going to come together, who's going to, you know, run this particular function. Because on, there are there are people on both sides, as I mentioned, right? So clear integration plan, which should be there bit during diligence. And even if you decide not to do the deal, it's okay. That's, a, that's extra work. But that extra work will pay back multiples if, if the deal actually happens. That's, that's, that's the second thing. The third piece is that everything is about culture, right? Everything is about culture because whatever we say that each organization takes on a cultural life of its own. In the early days, it's driven by the founders uh, and then it, it sort of, that culture keeps getting perpetuated and you just become an organization, you know, and there's a certain ethos, which is this intangible thing floating in the ether, which is hard to pinpoint, but it is there and they are very strong and very hard to change. There have been dreams and dreams written on driving cultural change, etc., etc. Uh, it's like something which, you know, a lot of people take very seriously as an academic subject as well. So, so really understanding that a successful integration, emergent integration is all about, all about mapping the cultures or marrying the cultures. See, ultimately, one culture might dominate the other, but how you do that, how gingerly you do that, and how much time you take to do that, all, all important factors. So, so one can't overemphasize the importance one must pay, uh, pay to this cultural uh, integration. You have to understand, A, what the culture is of an organization. And you can get a sense of it when you meet people during the diligence process. You have to understand how it maps to your culture. And they have to figure out ways to bridge it, right? In our, in, our, in our case, what we did was, we, within a month of the merger or two months of the merger, we had this whole values workshop, right? where we rewrote the vision, rewrote the mission, rewrote the values of the organization. 
and people on both sides of the organization, housing as well as Makan slash Prop Tiger who are present involved in that. So, so that sort of really created the sense of ownership amongst both sides. Otherwise, one would have felt if we had continued with the values of PropTide or with housing, we would have alienated somebody, right? So managing all of that becomes super critical. So I would say that pick the right reasons, have an integration plan in place and be very mind mindful of ensuring that there's the cultural assimilation which happens. That's, that will lead to a successful acquisition. So I want to understand about the secondary market. Like you said, PropTiger is more on the primary market. And there are now these startups in the US who like eye buying startups who uh, do you think that is the way to go for secondary market? Uh, is that something Prop Tiger would get into? Or, like, what's your take on that? See, look, I think the jury is still out on eye buying. There are a lot of startups doing that in the in the US and now no longer startups. They're like publicly listed, for example, and doing well. Revenues have ramped up. But one example is Zillow, which started eye buying. They shut down eye buying. Did it work not too well for them? The thing is that, look, at the end of the day, it's capital intensive. It's uh, it's a low margin business. You are at the mercy of the market cycle. You could you could easily end up buying very high and getting stuck with inventory and liquidating at a lower price. So you just lose money. Second thing is that it's 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 a very interesting thing that in a market where there are lots and lots of customers, it's it's really a seller's market. The question is, do I really need an eye buyer? There'll be five buyers at my doorstep anyways, right? willing to drive up prices. Uh, an iBuyer is a great proposition in a buyer's market, right? Where the seller is not finding people to sell to and the and the property is sitting on the market for long before it gets sold. An iBuyer comes and says, hey, look, I take this off your back in 24 hours. Even if you're going to take a slight haircut, I think it solves your problem. So so I think I think that's that's another, another nuance of, 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 of the iBuyer market, which I think applies to all markets. And then there's sort of the whole India angle to it, where there are transaction costs. If you buy and sell, you pay stamp duty twice. Okay. Um, In the US, that's not there, that whole stamp duty transaction cost. Yeah, that stamp duty thing, I don't quite understand it very well then, okay. how it works, but I think that's not an issue there. Okay. Right? No, so that's that because otherwise, six, seven percent of the bat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is massive. That, 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 mm. That's a problem. Then also price discovery, right? I mean, at the end of the day, right, even for the eye buyer, you have to build very, very strong pricing models to be able to bid, right? So the amount of secondary primary data available in the US, people have built some very, very good valuation models to be able to price the property. So imagine, forget whether the market's going up or down, you simply misprice the property. Then guess what? You lose your shirt. So 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 data is is always a challenge in India. So price discovery for the for the eye buyer is also a bit of a challenge, right? Which needs to be fixed. So look, I I I have I might be sounding like a skeptic. I'm not a skeptic of the iBuy model. I think it does solve an important problem. I think one problem it solves for the seller, of course, as I said, in, in a, more in a buyer's market, but still it solves the problem for a seller because literally selling to an institution, documentation is standard, money is paid quickly, you don't have bids which suddenly fall through. So lots of the uncertainties get removed. So I think it's, it's good for the seller. For the buyers, then ultimately, you're also buying from an institution, right? It's more reliable. The, the, the person won't back off for, for, for 50,000 rupees because he gets emotional about that or suddenly changes his or her mind, uh, which, which we've seen happen in secondary deals. That is, it, it creates a more efficient market. If you ask me, and price discovery is better because someone's putting money where their mouth is. Um, so I think I like it for that reason. Uh, I think over time, models will evolve. And even in India, and I think uh, you will find an eye buyer of scale ultimately emerging in India as well. Hmm. Uh, will it be so, Prop Tiger? Like, would you be uh, interested look, to? To be honest, we've not we've not looked at that model, and so there are no sort of imminent plans to get into that. But we've seen a lot of startups uh, who are trying to do that. I've spoken to a few. They sought my advice as well. And look, I, as I said, I, I'm a believer, but I think a few things still need to sort of sort themselves out before mm -hmm. it becomes big. Mm -hmm. So what is on your roadmap then? Like, like oh, initiatives, uh, stuff that you want to do over the next couple of years? Look, for us right now, a big focus is relentless focus, as I said, on, on, on audience, on brand, consumer experience. L like right now, housing is like your uh, rising star, so to say. L like that's what you want to invest and grow. So look, we're investing in uh, in all our businesses, housing and prop tiger. As I said, that housing has 
a a certain dynamic to it driven by the industry itself which has the which has the characteristics of a winner takes all platform stickiness etc etc audiences come from across the country for both buying selling pg commercial everything so that business tend to get sticky prop tiger at the end of the day is a primary market residential primary residential market broker so so it's playing in a limited market right so the ability for us to spend money on the brand is limited because at the end of the day it tends to be more of a local business uh it's more word of mouth as i mentioned to you earlier so both businesses will continue to grow we we continue to invest but clearly the the trajectory of 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 these two businesses fundamentally will be different driven by the nature of the industry they are in so brokerages tend to be linear businesses these businesses tend to see non linear growth and your your sort of incremental return on investment keeps keeps significantly ramping up while brokerage businesses tend to have lower operating leverage unfortunately hmm. got it okay If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books, and drama. Visit the Podium dot in, that is, t h e p o d i u n dot i n for a complete list of all our shows. Before we end the episode, I want to share a bit about my journey as a podcaster. I started podcasting in 2020 and in the last 2 years I've had the opportunity to interview more than 250 founders who are shaping India's future across sectors. If you also want to speak to the best minds in your field and build an enviable network, then you must consider becoming a podcaster. And the first step to becoming a podcaster starts with Zencaster, which takes care of all the nuts and bolts of podcasting. from remote recording to editing to distribution and finally monetization if you are planning to check out the platform then please show your support for the founder thesis podcast by using this link zen.ai/founderthesis that's zen.ai/founderthesis